0: Chapter 5 I Travel the Silk Road I am standing over the tiger, my thigh dripping with blood, my clothes shredded by the razor-sharp claws sticking out of his once mighty paw. I clutch the sword with my trembling hand, the cold steel shivering in the sunlight of the arena. I stare at the beast, his pleading eyes looking back at me, knowing it's the end. The crowd is on their feet, wildly cheering. Each face in the crowd is the face of Buddha, The tiger lies on the blood-soaked dirt floor, no strength left to move. I look around at the crowd. I vomit. I vomit again. I look back at the tiger. The tiger whispers to me ever so softly, please, no. I tighten my grip on the sword. I slowly raise it high above my head like a roller coaster reaching its peak, looking at the tiger the whole time. My eyes turn red. My teeth turn to fangs. My skin turns red, then starts on fire. Pain is all over me. The sword begins its descent towards the tiger, its inches away from the tiger's neck. I wake up in pure darkness, my body is sweating profusely. I look around, trying to use the moonlight to see my surroundings. I check my thigh and find no blood, just a scar from that day. I look at my hands and wonder how they could have done such a thing all those years ago. My dream comes more frequently now. Each time it's always the same. I wake up right before the sword can extinguish life from the beast. My reoccurring dream must mean I am getting closer to the end. With each task I accomplish, I am that much closer to saving the tiger and erasing what happened that day. The three golden coins in my pocket remind me that I discovered fire, invented irrigation, and performed mummification. Five coins remain. As I think back to sixth grade and what an amazing year it was, I become confused. I can only remember going to seven ancient worlds. That doesn't make sense. It dawns on me for the first time that something doesn't quite add up. Why would Buddha make a deal with me to accomplish eight tasks in eight ancient worlds when there are only seven of them? With my mind racing, I am immediately panic-stricken at the possibility that I might have to go to a place I have never been before. I am scared, nervous, and something is telling me that the ancient world I have never been to before is not a future task, it is now. I am alert now that my mind has released itself from the dream. I see the sun climbing into the sky raising its head above the horizon line. The darkness I woke up in is slowly melting away like people in a store at closing time. Soon the sun will be high in the sky revealing the world I now find myself in. The weird sensation of being in a completely new place for the first time has not left. It feels like my first day at middle school an anxious feeling of not knowing what to expect. Now it is time, not time for rem- remembering the past times though. Now I must focus on my present situation. The sun is up and begins to reveal the terrain of this place. I look around in amazement. As it turns out, the weird sensation I have been experiencing proved to be correct. As I look around, I do not recognize anything. I recognize the odd looking people of the stone age. I recognize the desert of Mesopotamia and the pyramids of Egypt but here nothing looks familiar here I see a white sand desert high mountain ranges snow-capped peaks a powerful yellow river and lush green plains nothing in this place looks familiar not only are the physical features unrecognizable but a giant wall stretching forever is new to me as well it appears that I if I am able to accomplish my fourth task and move on it will take place in an ancient world I have never been before I feel sick The bread and water I ate before I left Egypt comes up, splashing the grass at my feet. Though I have never been to this place before, I know that a task awaits me somewhere out in the unknown. I also know that I will never leave this place until I accomplish it. I must do two things, and do them quickly. I must figure out where I am, and I must figure out what my task is. I begin walking quickly towards the river. I know from previous experiences that I will find people at the river, and with people I may find my task. My walk turns into a jog, then a sprint. Luckily, I entered this world quite close to the river, so it only takes me a few minutes of running to reach my destination. As I approach the river, I see that a town does, in fact, exist. Something in my subconscious is telling me that my task waits here, which gives me hope. The town is unlike anything I've seen before. The people I see look nothing like I'm used to seeing back home. The people are shorter than people back home. Everyone has black hair and white skin. They wear large hats that look like brown umbrellas. I hear them speaking to each other in a language that sounds like gibberish. As I walk through this town, I notice a sign hung up on the market corner that reads, People of the Han." I turn toward another market and walk in its direction. I have no idea where I am going or what to do. I am counting on my instincts to guide me. As I walk, I hear a whisper come into my ear, though I see nobody looking at me. The whisper informs me that I must go to the third house beyond the Kuan Yin rice market. I smile. Buddha has once again come through with guidance. I turn in the direction of the Kuan Yin rice market and walk. The house I was directed to is more of a shack with bamboo poles clad with cowhide. I slowly pull back the curtain and hesitantly enter. Two people are in the hut talking to each other. At first, it seems like I am invisible, as neither one looks up at me. I take one more cautious step forward and the shuffling of my feet finally gains their attention. They look up with serious faces. I can tell they had been in deep thought and discussion about something, something I was not meant to hear. They hold their gaze on me for what seems like hours, freezing me in my tracks. I break the stalemate. Hello. My one simple word fails to break the frozen statues. Remembering the odd language from the city, I decide they probably have no idea what I'm saying. Next, I try a wave. This works. The two each nod their head, giving me confidence that I am allowed to move forward. Where am I? Once again, no response. My language must seem as odd as theirs does to me. Instead of repeating my words like a fool, I use my hands to gesture, trying to get them to understand that I want to know where I am. I extend my arms out and rotate around while also looking around, trying to give off the image of being lost. This, as it turns out, works. Ah, ah, ya, ya, chin, chin. Through this muttering of sounds, one word sticks out chin. Of course. I should have figured this out much earlier. The appearance of the people, the long giant wall. It makes sense now. I am embarrassed that it took me so long to figure this puzzle out. I am in China. I remember back to sixth grade and realize I never came here. Out of all the ancient worlds I learned about in sixth grade, this place was the only place I never time traveled to. I didn't think much of it at the time, though. Now, I wish I had. Though I have figured out where I am, I still do not know how to communicate with these people, besides trying to use physical gestures, which is very frustrating and time-consuming. I need to figure out how to communicate with these two because something is telling me the key to discovering what my task is lies within this hut. Miraculously, the two begin speaking in English right in front of my eyes. I cannot believe it. Look, once again fallen on my side though their English is a little broken and full of accent I can figure out what they're saying hi I say to them good morning what is your name I am Chen this is my friend Dishi why are you here I reply that uh, is actually a good question I am not exactly sure why I am here someone or something told me to come to this hut I say very odd I think you might have the wrong hut. Please, go away. We are busy. Dishi begins ushering me to the exit rather forcefully. Wait, please, I must stay. No, we are too busy to entertain you. No time for visitors. You must leave. Wait, I can't leave. Please, tell me, what were you talking about when I entered? The two give each other questioning looks, as if trying to read each other's minds about what to do with me. I have no idea what that might be. Perhaps I'll simply get kicked out of the hut. Perhaps I will get thrown in prison, perhaps I will get killed. My mind races out of control at the horror of the possibilities. Finally, they return their eyes to me. They see desperation in my eyes. Please, come with us, sit down. I breathe a tremendous sigh of relief knowing my head will remain attached to my neck. I sit down with Chen and Dishi on the floor, around a table that sits only one foot high. When you entered, Dishi and I were discussing our next trip down the Silk Road. The what? The Silk Road. Dishi and I are traders. The trade route road is a very the Silk Road is a very important trade route from here to Europe. Why is it called the Silk Road? You must not be very bright. It is called the Silk Road because of silk. China is the only place in the world with silk worms. With our silk worms, we can make silk, which is a very valuable cloth in the world. With the silk we produce, we travel along the Silk Road and bring it to Europe to get things we don't have in China. The Silk Road allows us to get to other parts of the world, which helps us improve our civilization. Interesting, but how long is the route? The route is over 4,000 miles long and it is usually performed in a relay type style. But Dishi and I will be traveling the whole way. We do not trust anyone else to relay with. The trip takes over a year to complete. Why don't other parts of the world make silk? Why can't you bring the silkworms to other countries? No! You must never bring the silkworm to other countries. If you are caught trying to bring silkworms to Europe, you will be executed. The demand for silk is very high because nobody has the silkworm but us. So, we must not allow the silkworm to get to other places. We must keep the monopoly on silk to ensure that we get the things we need. So, are you guys planning another trip or what? Yes, we are. We will be leaving in one week, and there is much to prepare for before we are able to leave. So, let me get this straight. You are going to bring silk to Europe, and then trade it for what? We will actually be going to Rome. When we get there, we will trade the silk for three items, gold, silver, and gems. Now, you must go. Dishi and I must get back to work. This time, both Chen and Dishi escort me towards the door giving me a slight shove to make sure I fully exit their hut. I walk a few paces and sit down on the ground, trying to digest all that they told me. Two words Chen stand out and consume my thoughts. Rome and gold. It only takes a few moments to piece together the riddle. It comes to me like a meteor. Rome, the place where I face the tiger. Chen and Dishi are going to Rome, a place I so badly want to return to and perhaps end this journey. The second word is even more cutting, gold. They are traveling to, going to travel the Silk Road to trade for gold. My body tenses, building with fear and anxiousness. My mind swirls, but finally comes to rest in the only possible outcome. I must travel the Silk Road with Chen and Dishi for my fourth golden coin waits at the end, if I'm able to make it. I run back toward the hut and bust through the curtain door. I must go with you! I must go with you! My shouting startles both Chan and Dishi as they both reach for their swords. What are you talking about, strange boy? No, you cannot go with us. It is much too dangerous along the Silk Road. You know nothing how to defend yourself. No, you don't understand. It's not that I want to go with you. I have to go with you. It is part of my destiny to travel the Silk Road with you. I have to go with, and I have to make it to the end, for something awaits me in Rome both again exchange nervous looks. Apparently, they decide one more person for their group might help them, for they give me a nod, which tells me I've been accepted into their group. Chan and Dishi fill me in with as much about the trip as they know. They have traveled the Silk Road twice, but each time as part of a relay team. Now they will be making the whole trip, from China to Rome, which, I now realize, is why I was told to meet them specifically by the whisper of Buddha. Chen informs me that traveling the Silk Road is very dangerous. Treacherous terrain, daunting mountains, scorching desert, and savage thieves await the Silk Road travelers. I think to myself, of course it will be difficult. Why wouldn't? It's like Buddha is going to give me an easy task. I reply to Chen that I am willing to do whatever it takes to make it to Rome. I must get to the end of the Silk Road. The week leading up to our departure is spent gathering supplies, preparing our caravan, and training with the weapons we will bring. My sword skills surprised both Chen and Dishi. While practicing with the sword, I can't help but think back to the last time I was swinging one. We gather the amount of silk it will take to make the trade for gold, silver, and gems. We also gather some spices and ivory, for they might come in handy as well throughout the trip. Chen informs me that it's important to have other tradable goods along other than silk. The most interesting thing about preparing is getting our caravan set to go. Since there's three of us we get three Bactrian camels which will be doing the hauling for us. Chen informs me that each camel can carry 600 pounds and for a 4,000 mile trip we will need to use every pound to make sure we have all that we need. Chen tells me that the Bactrian camel with its two humps can go an entire week without water and over 25 days without food which makes it the perfect animal for traveling the Silk Road. It also has the ability to protect itself from sandstorms by closing its nostrils and having two sets of eyelids that act as windshield wipers. These camels can also endure extreme heat and extreme cold without being affected. All of our supplies are packed and loaded onto our camels. We have water, food, and enough silk to get what we want in Rome. We finish fastening the camels together with long rope, leaving us with only one last decision to make, the route. Chen informs me that there isn't one lone route, but multiple routes people travel. We have two options, the northern route and the central route. The northern route is shorter, but it will take us through back-to-back deserts, the Gobi Desert and the Taklamakan Desert. The central route will take us through only one desert, but before we get there, we will have to make it through the daunting Chinling Mountains. It is your choice. Thinking back to Mesopotamian Egypt, I am sick of sand and desert so I choose the route with only one desert. I would much rather tackle the mountain range than back-to-back deserts. This, perhaps, shows how naive I am in what it's like traveling over mountains. I choose the central route, I say, and with that, our trip is set. I am excited my task is about to get underway, though I am definitely nervous as we set out into the unknown and unpredictable world of the Silk Road. Whatever awaits me on this journey, I will face it head-on, determined not to fail. As we lead the camel caravan outside the city walls of Xi'an, I look back with a little bit of sadness. Though I only spent a week in this city, I know that I will not be returning no matter what. The finality of the situation drums up emotion. The thought reminds me of the seriousness of the adventure I am in, which the result must be success, for there is no losing, only dying. Chen, Di Shi, and I each grab the rope to our camel and begin leading it out onto the silk road. I notice that this is no road at all, just a path, heavily worn by all the travelers in the past. As we walk, Chen and I talk casually, conversation coming easy to the both of us. We discuss Chen's life. I tell him about mine. Chen tells me about the, his past Silk Road travels. I tell him about my tasks. We find each other very interesting. Chen is a very nice, polite person, with a sense of confidence about him. Dishi, however, says very little as the miles pass. He rarely says anything, and when he does, only to Chen. He gives me glances, staring at me like he is trying to read my mind. He is very cold toward me, giving me the sense that he wishes I was not on this trip. As we talk and walk and the days and months pass, we travel parallel along the Great Wall of China, which provides protection from anyone wishing to harm us from the north. So far, the trip has gone along pleasantly enough, which makes me nervous because I know without a doubt that eventually... We will be tested physically and mentally just as i am thinking about how well the trip has gone so far we approach the base of the chinling mountains our first difficult stretch has arrived we stop and prepare camp as the sun begins to set this will be our 63rd night on the silk road in the morning we will attempt to conquer the unforgiving terrain of the chinling mountain range our camels struggle up the cliffs of the mountains we urge them on pulling the ropes whipping their backsides The mountains prove to be a very difficult stretch of the Silk Road to pass through. The rain begins to pour as we struggle to gain solid footing on this mountain. The wet mountainside causes our camels to slip with almost every step. We dig in, but the wet, solid mountainside does not give. Our progress slows almost to one mile per day. It's exhausting on the mountain. We struggle all day, trying to gain one inch at a time. The rain continues to pour. Then, when we are totally exhausted, stop to set up camp our camp is miserable we sleep in the rain no shelter and no fire for the rain never lets up Chen and Dishi's expression never changes it is always one of seriousness and focus we have been in the mountains for three weeks when the rain stops the joy from the rain stopping quickly dissipates because freezing temperatures replace the rain now instead of a wet mountain we are now trying to make our way through ice and snow covered mountains I do not know if I can make it any further The mountains may prove to be too tough for me to get through. Perhaps I should have chosen the other route, though I just couldn't have imagined having to trudge through two deserts in a row. My mood gets even worse, knowing that if we do make it out of the mountains, the Taklamakan desert awaits. With each struggling step, we get closer to the end of the mountain range. Suddenly, as I am trying to urge my camel forward, a banded crate, one of the most poisonous snakes in Asia, approaches my camel. I am frozen with fear. I can see the white and black banded snake slither toward me, with its devil tongue slipping in and out, knowing that with one bite of its venom, my entire central nervous system will shut down and I will die. The snake lunges at me, but suddenly is intercepted in mid-air by a flying Chinese throwing star that slams into the ground. I look at the wiggling snake as the last moments of life leave the poisonous creature. I look in the opposite direction and see Chen smiling. Thank you, I say. For the next month, We continue struggling through the Chinling Mountains. The weather has turned extremely cold, but our warm clothing protects us and our camels are unaffected. Chen assures me that we are close to the end of the mountains. I believe him, but am struggling to hold on. I look at Dishi and he continues to give me glares colder than the temperature. Finally, I can see the end in sight. The tall, steep peaks give way to flat, smooth terrain. We manage to get through the mountains and pass the snake attack without losing our cargo or our lives. I feel good about getting through the mountains and having passed this first big test of the Silk Road. Now I must get into desert mode, for I know that the sands of the Taklamakan Desert are waiting. After we have fully emerged from the Qinling Mountains, Chen informs you that we will rest for a week at Fong before we set out for the Taklamakan Desert and Rome. Dishi continues to give me the silent treatment, though every time he looks at me. It's as if he's spewing out hatred. It is a point of great confusion as to why Dishi acts like this. Feeling uneasy any time I am around him, I grow more paranoid and watchful in his presence. The week in Dunfang is very restful, which we needed after the treacherous hike through the Kindling. We spend our time sleeping, eating, drinking water, replenishing our depleted supplies, and planning the remainder of the trip. Again, Dishi remains cold toward me. Our last night in Dune Fong passes, and we again load up our camels and resume our journey. We lead our camels forward in the direction of the Taklamakan. As we begin sloshing through the sand, I notice the Great Wall is no longer following us. It has stopped. We have reached the end, and now have no protection from the north. It is totally wide open, with nothing stopping a band of savage warriors from destroying us and our slow camels. I also notice a sign at the beginning of the Taklamakan that reads, Whoever enters shall never return. I can't take my eyes off the sign as we slowly make our way forward. I swallow with difficulty, not wanting to think about what lies ahead. We have been in the desert for seven weeks. The sand blows with relentless energy. The camels continue to push forward, but Chen, Dishi, and I struggle to stay on our feet. Our camels are packed too heavy for us to ride them. I feel like I have sand everywhere like I could take a million showers and still not be rid of the sand. I go for hours without opening my eyes, just holding onto the rope, blindly following my camel. My mouth is sticky with sand. Each time I bite down, I feel like I am eating glass. No matter what I try, I cannot get the sand out of my mouth. I take a drink from my canteen, but get sandy water. I try to spit out the sand, but in doing so, even more s- sand blows in. My tanned skin now red with windburn. Sand pellets sting my skin like getting slapped on a sunburn. Day after day, it's these conditions we walk through. Nights bring howling monsters crying out in the darkness, which we cannot see, swirling sand, which we cannot avoid. No matter what, there is no relief from the sand. The desert Mesopotamia I about died in is no match for what the Taklamakan has. The white sand seems to deflect all the heat from the blazing sun right at us. Chen and Dishi also struggle, but their facial expressions never change. The savage warriors from the north finally come on our 65th day in the desert. They charge us with glistening swords, their horses pumping forward with rage. We are caught off guard. Chen and Dishi both reach for their sword. When the warriors come within range, they begin rapidly throwing their razor-sharp stars at the band of warriors. With surgical precision, Chen and Dishi drop four out of the eight warriors immediately. Next, Chen circles around his camel, jumps up, onto one of its humps and flies at another warrior, striking him with his sword in mid-flight, dropping him instantly from his horse. Dishi, with sword and staff drawn, swing wildly but with control and takes down two more. In almost the blink of an eye, the band of warriors has been reduced from eight to one. I picked the right two guys to travel with, I think, grinning. Though I have not contributed anything to the fight, I am alert but cannot see the eighth warrior. Suddenly, another Chen throwing star whizzes by my ear, Nicking it, but planting firmly in the shoulder of the eighth warrior. Seeing my chance, I withdraw my sword and swing it with one powerful motion right through his stomach. Little did Chen and Shi know, this is not my first time with a sword. We survive the attack, and after traveling a few more miles, stop for a well-deserved night's rest. I awake, but hear no wind. Am I dreaming? No, I am not. I am awake, and the wind is gone. I shake Chen! Chen! The wind is gone. Ah, yes, yes, no wind. We close. We begin the day a little earlier than usual, wanting to get started on what is hopefully one of our last days of travel. Being so close to our destination, we can taste the end, along with the sand that still fills our cavities. We exit the Taklamakan Desert. This time, as I look back toward the desert, knowing I will never again return, there isn't the slightest hint of sadness, only joy. If I never see another desert again the rest of my life, I would be happy. The next three weeks of our journey are over a relatively flat land with pleasant climates. Chen and I continue to talk, having gr- grown rather close throughout this trip. As I tell him about the tiger, I feel a sharp point touching my back. As I turn to see what is going on, everything goes black. The first thing I hear is Chen's voice. Hello? Hello? You all right, yeah? You wake up now, yes? You now open eye?" I slowly open my eyes and am greeted by a massive headache. My vision is blurry, but I can see Chen kneeling over me, trying to give me some water. Uh, what, uh, what happened? Oh, nothing. You hit head, that all. Hit my head on what? Chen explains to me that I hit my head on a branch that was hanging too low. Though sounding convincing, I did not believe Chen. I do not remember seeing any branches as I was walking right before I blacked out. In fact, now as I look back to where we came from, there are no trees in sight at all. I ask Chen about this, and he just keeps repeating the same thing. Hit head on tree. I notice that Dishi is no longer here. Again, I ask Chen. Dishi go ahead. He go by himself. I accept the answer, but realize we still have three camels. I then glance down at Chen's sword and see fresh blood with still smearing the blade. I look up at Chen. I don't say a word, just thank him with my eyes. Chen informs me that while I was blacked out, I rode on the camel for over 20 miles. Now we are one mile away, and I can see Rome in the distance. I feel excited. I have made it to the end of the Silk Road. I have, with the help of Chen, overcome many dangerous obstacles, the length of the Silk Road itself, enough to discourage would-be travelers. It took us over one year to travel the Silk Road and make it to Rome. We march into the city of Rome like conquering heroes. Chen knows right where the market is that we will trade for our silk. As we approach the man behind the counter, I take out my quantity of silk and show it to him. The man, wearing a white robe with earrings and rings on his fingers, hands me a piece of gold. I look down at the small nugget resting in my hand and realize this is no ordinary piece of gold. This piece of gold is special. This piece of gold is marked Ancient China and will release me from this ancient world. I look at Chen. He looks back at me, like he knows this is not only the end of our trip together, but the end of our friendship. It's as if he can tell that soon I will be gone. I give Chen a hug and tell him thanks for all his help. He nods in his typical humble way. I close my eyes, close my fist, then I am gone.